We're going to be reading from Luke 1, 5 through 38. Please rise for the reading of God's word. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he and his wife, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. Both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remaining mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people. <clears throat> in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth at her old age has also conceived a son. And this is in the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. 
And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, growing up every year, when I was little especially, we would wake up on Christmas morning, we would have uh, open gifts at, at our, our house, and then, you know, you'd get ready for the day, and then we would go to my grandma and grandpa Waterman's house uh, by lunchtime for the great Christmas feast and family festivities and all of that, and I had a uncle, I have an uncle, who is six years older than me, so odd situation, he's closer in age to me than he is to my dad, his brother, so he's kind of, you know, in between, and so when I was a child, he was a teenager, and I remember one year, we were opening gifts there at my grandma and grandpa's house, and one of the things that would sometimes happen is my uncle uh, would end up opening up his gifts from his parents, my, my grandma and grandpa, at the same time as we were all opening up our kind of family gift exchanges, where we had already done that at home. He was doing that right there with us. And so one year, he was, uh, that was the case. We got there, and there was this big present. As I remember it, there was this big present wrapped for my uncle. And everyone was anticipating, this present is so big. What possibly could this present be that my uncle is going to get? And so we ate, you know, lunch, and we came to the time of opening up gifts, and everyone's anticipation was more for my uncle's gift than for their own, right? Because it was so big. And so he begins to unwrap this, you know, I can't remember what it was, a, a, a stove, you know, an oven box or dishwasher box or something. It was massive. And he begins to open it up, and he, he reaches down in and he pulls out another wrapped box. Okay, he sits this first one aside. He begins to unwrap that, and he, he reaches down in it, and he pulls out another wrapped box. And then he begins to unwrap that, and he reaches, and I don't even know how many, it, the the room was filled with boxes and wrapping paper. That's all I remember. And finally, he gets down to what basically amounts to a jewelry box. Box after box after box, right? And he gets down to this. And, and as every box gets, gets unwrapped, the anticipation grows, and yet the present shrinks. And when he opens that little jewelry box, inside is a piece of paper, and he opens up the piece of paper, and it says, go look in your room on the shelf. So we're all sitting in the living room. He scurries off to his bedroom to look on the shelf, and he comes back. And what does he come back with but a car key? And we all knew what that meant. We all knew that there was a car outside for him. Now, don't get visions of grandeur about my family. I mean, it was like a 1983, you know, Honda, you know, Accord or something. I mean, it was, it was, this thing was a beater car, but, but it was a car, right? And that's what every teenager wants the most. That's what every teenager anticipates. What he thought was a huge present 
And what he was puzzled by as it shrunk became way bigger than he had ever originally thought. You see, one of the unique features of Luke's gospel is that there's this inclusion of a lot more of John the Baptist's story. I mentioned this last week, including his birth narrative. And these first two chapters of the book of Luke are just full of Old Testament references and allusions, and they bounce back and forth between the story of John and the story of Jesus. And so you begin to wonder why. Why does that happen? And Luke, Luke is using this, this origin story of these two main figures to clue us into God's plan for salvation as he will explain it in his gospel. The first century Jew who was paying attention as he's reading the book of Luke, as he's reading this gospel account, would have had much anticipation about the coming of the Messiah. The first century Jew who was living in the days of Zechariah and Mary and Elizabeth and Joseph would have had much anticipation about the coming Messiah, and so would have Zechariah and Elizabeth. John the Baptist's coming was a big deal, but, but Luke wants us to understand that while he, he is a big deal, while he is the forerunner, he's not the fulfillment. What happens with John's birth is great. It's miraculous. Miraculous enough that the, the common reader of the Old Testament might have expected that it is actually the arrival of the Messiah, the the. The common uh, Jew of the day might have been reading the story of John the Baptist and said, this must be the Messiah. This is so miraculous. And what Luke wants us to know is, ah, no, it's not. Because while John the Baptist's birth is miraculous, there's one that's even better. And so he parallels the story of John's birth and the story of Jesus' birth. And so here's the bottom line that I want to give you this morning. God gives all we ever wanted and more in Jesus. God gives all we ever wanted and more in Jesus. And I'm going to illustrate that this morning by by contrasting these two accounts. Now, Now, Luke tells the one and then he tells the other, but what I'm going to do this morning is actually bounce back a little bit, back and forth between the two accounts and compare them for you. And we're going to compare the parents And we're going to compare the children, and then we're going to compare the questions that each asks and the answers given. All right. So first, let's consider the parents. And what I want you to see in this part of the story is that it's great when obedience is rewarded, but God's grace is better. It's great when obedience is rewarded. That's a good thing. But God's grace is better. So let's consider John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. What do we know about them? We're told that Zechariah is a priest. And he has a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So she's of priestly lineage as well. And, And in fact, His wife's name is Elizabeth, which, if you didn't know, was the name of Aaron, himself's wife. And so all of these signs, uh, all these uh, indicators are supposed to point us to the fact 
that, that Zechariah and Elizabeth are of the best bloodlines, the best priestly bloodlines that you could imagine. But it's not just their bloodlines, right? They are also blameless. It says they're righteous before God, righteous in regard to the law. They walk blamelessly, it says, in all of the, the commandments and all of the statutes. They knew God's word front and back, likely memorizing most of it. But they didn't just know it. They believed it. They followed it. They aren't like the Pharisees and teachers of the law we'll see later in Jesus' ministry. No, Zechariah and Elizabeth are genuinely devoted to the Lord. But they have one big problem, and it's a huge one. Despite being old, despite having plenty of time, they're barren. In all their faithful years, God has not blessed them with a child. And this fact would have been seen as a reproach. It would have been seen publicly as they must have done something wrong. They must have not been blameless for God to have taken away the ability for them to have a child. But we're told in the text, no, in fact, they are blameless. They are righteous before the Lord. And what does, that, what does that tell us? What does that tell us if we are keyed into the Old Testament stories? It tells us that there's something very special about what's going to happen with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Because when we look back in the Old Testament, when someone is righteous, when someone is devoted to God, and yet is barren, it anticipates something. God is going to do something special. We see that in Abraham. We see that in Hannah and her story when she gives birth to Samuel. It's a common theme in the Old Testament. God is planning to do something very special here with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then, and then Zechariah, he gets this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, Okay? So in their day, there were so many priests that they would have to divide up, they divide the priests up into divisions, and then, and then each division would have a chance to serve at the temple twice a year. Twice a year would be your turn. I don't know, it's like the National Guard, but for first century Jews or something. So twice a year, they'd come to the temple, and they'd have an opportunity to serve at the temple, and it just so happened that it was Zechariah's division's turn, and so he was there. And then even more so, when you were there on duty, they would sort of draw straws. I mean, I don't think it was actually straws, but they would cast lots at random. They would pick a priest within the division to bring the morning and bring the evening sacrifice each day. And now there were so many in the division that even though you did this twice a day, the chance of you getting an opportunity to go into the most holy place and to offer this sacrifice was minimal. Many priests would live their whole life and they would never get the opportunity to do it. And if you did get the opportunity to do it, your name was withdrawn from the the, the drawing for the rest of your life. You only did it once, at most. And it just so happens that this particular day, 
Zechariah's name gets pulled. It was an incredible honor. It was the only time he would do so. And we can assume, most likely, that his name got pulled for the evening sacrifice because in verse 10 it says that a multitude of people were praying outside. And, and we know that there was a prayer time that coincided with the evening sacrifice. And so people would gather outside of the temple, outside of the most holy place, and they would pray. They would pray to the Lord for the forgiveness of their sins. They would pray to the Lord for the restoration of their people as as this priest would go in and offer the sacrifice for the people at the same time. And so you can imagine, just just think about this, this scene. There's a throng of people solemnly praying, praying for God to be gracious, to accept the offering. And, and here comes Zechariah carrying this sacrifice right by this group of people. The only time he'll ever do it in his entire life. And he enters, he goes past them to where none of those people will ever enter into the most holy place, right? Into this, into this sanctuary of the Lord to offer the sacrifice. And as he does so, as he places the incense on the altar, and as he joins his prayer with the prayers of those outside, an angel appears on the right side of the altar, the side of favor. And Zechariah does what everyone does when they see an angel in the Bible. He is greatly troubled and falls in fear. Look, look. I don't know what, you know, common things today, images have, have, what images that the media and, and such have put into your head about angels, but we've got no cute, chubby, little childlike angels in the Bible, all right? It is the only, the only kind of angels are the ones that make you fall on your face in fear for your life. That's it. And the angel says what angels usually say to those whom they've come to with good news instead of bad news. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I get it, but it's all right. Stand up. And he says, your prayers have been heard. What prayers? The general prayer for the favor of for God's favor to the people? Well, it could be. Was he praying right then specifically for God's favor, to, for him to have a child, for, for he and Zechariah to have a child? Well, it's possible, though his reaction to the news and his old age and his own thoughts about his current state probably tell us that maybe at that day he wasn't praying for that. Maybe, maybe that had been a prayer he had given up years ago. And perhaps we're talking about past prayers Who knows over the years how many countless times he and his wife had fallen on their knees praying, Lord, please give us a child. Lord, please give us a child. Whatever prayers are referred to, the fact is that God's favor will be seen in Elizabeth having a son, whom they shall call John. Year after year, they had followed God's law, and year after year, God had not blessed them with the one thing that they desired that they did not have, children. 
Like my uncle's gift, each year the anxiety grew as the opportunity shrunk down and down and down until it was basically no chance it was going to happen. But God hadn't forgotten them. No, God was setting the stage. He was setting the stage for something greater than they could ever imagine. Understand, this is how God works. It's not enough, not enough for God to just do a miracle. He likes to stack the deck against himself just to show us, yeah, I can do it. That's the kind of God we serve. No, God had not forgotten them. He would give them a child in their old age, just like their father Abraham. And not just any child, a special child, a special child to God's redemptive plan. You see, we feel like that sometimes, don't we? We've been faithfully serving God, but we haven't seen the fruit. We've been faithfully serving God, but we haven't seen the fruit of our labor, a different kind of labor perhaps than was the case for Zechariah and Elizabeth. But Psalm 37, 5 says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. Zechariah and Elizabeth remind us of this. But as great as this truth is, what we need to understand is Luke wants us to know there is actually something better in this story. Six months later, the same angel appears to another person this time to a woman, a nondescript virgin from Nazareth, a nondescript town. Mary, a teenager who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. The comparison to Zechariah is stark. You have an old man and a teenage girl. You have special ancestry and you have no ancestry. You have special position and you have no position. Not that Zechariah is bad for, for any of these things being true of him. In fact, the Bible says he was righteous and, and applauds him for it. Nor that Mary is better simply because she's a nobody. Rather, the point isn't Zechariah or Mary. The point is what God is doing and what he does. Gabriel comes to Mary and greets her. He says, O favored one, the Lord is with you. O favored one, one on whom God's grace, favor, comes from the same word that we translate grace. O favored one, the Lord is with you. Mary is greatly troubled and confused because that's what you do when an angel comes and talks to you. I'd be greatly troubled and confused too. I'm willing to bet that you'd be greatly troubled and confused. He says, do not be afraid, the angel continues. You have found favor, you have found grace with God. God's grace is on you. You will conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Twice the angel repeats that God's grace is on Mary. This unsuspecting, unassuming girl is being showered with the grace of God. God chose her, not because of anything special in her, because there was nothing special about her. Because we have a special God. With Zechariah, we see that it's always good to choose God's ways. 
But with Mary, we see that it's better to be chosen by God. With Zechariah, we hear of life coming out of barrenness. But with Mary, we hear of life coming not from human effort, but by God's work. With Zechariah, God remembers the faithful. But with Mary, God gives grace to the humble. Here's the point. The righteousness that comes by God's grace will exceed the righteousness that comes by the law. The righteousness that comes by God's grace will exceed any righteousness that you can can create by your own effort. God's grace makes room both for devout somebodies and humble nobodies. It's great when obedience is rewarded, but guys, God's grace is more than we can imagine. Now let's turn our attention to the children. We've looked at the parents, but let's look at these two children that are to be born. And what I want you to see here is this. It's great when God sends His people as prophets, but God sending His Son as King is better. Let's return to the scene with Zechariah and Gabriel, though he doesn't know it's Gabriel yet. What does Gabriel say about this child, John? His greatness will be in both his character and the mission God has given him. And that's illustrated through a few Old Testament allusions that I want, I want to kind of illuminate for you here. First, first, it says that he must not drink wine or strong drink. Now, priests followed this stricter rule during the time of their service. So Zechariah, during the time of his service, right then, would have been kind of on a a, a ban from strong drink, from wine. A a total ban. But it was not a whole life restriction for priests. It was, however, part of what is called the Nazarite vow. And this makes us think of, of Samson, who was supposed to be a Nazarite, remember? Whose mother was visited by an angel as well and instructed similarly that she would have a child and that that child would save Israel from the Philistines. Well, at least he would to an extent, and to an extent he wouldn't, and that would point forward to Christ. In the same way that John would point forward to Christ. But there's a tighter connection here as well. And that connection is with Samuel, who took a similar vow from birth and who was the first prophet of Israel. And this is important. Samuel, in a time when the priesthood was disobedient, when the priesthood was failing, called the people of Israel to turn themselves back to the Lord their God. John the Baptist would do something similar, calling the people to turn back to the Lord their God. Second, it says that he will go before in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, Elijah was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. There was no prophet that was seen as greater than Elijah was seen. When John would, though John wouldn't do miracles like Elijah, his message would be the same, repent. Elijah came and said, turn back to the Lord, turn back to the Lord. And so would John repent. Third, there are numerous connections here to Malachi. 
who prophesied of an, an Elijah to come, a new Elijah. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. In Malachi 4, 5, and 6, we see it saying, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. We see how Luke is tying in those things, how Gabriel is quoting Malachi as he's speaking of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. John will be the last of the Old Testament prophets. He will call people to repentance. And though many won't listen, just like they didn't in Elijah's day, John will find a remnant in God's people who will turn to the Lord. And he will make those people ready for the Lord's coming. This is amazing. To the Jew in the first century, this would have been monumental. But there's more. What is said about this other child? Jesus. In verse 32 and 33, it says this, He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there will be no end. As one commentator put it, the Baptist is, quote, great before the Lord, while Jesus is simply great. Luke will show us later how Jesus is a descendant of David, and it's to Jesus, that the throne of David is given permanently. You see, Jesus fulfills the covenant God made with David, saying, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus is coming to be the long-awaited king, to establish the long-awaited kingdom, a kingdom that will be forever, a kingdom that will be over the house of Jacob, but also and what we'll soon, we will soon see as a connecting passage, and Daniel and others like it, Jesus is the one to whom is given, quote, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. And so we see laced in right here at the very beginning of the story that Jesus is coming not only to establish a kingdom over the, over ethnic Jews, but over all the peoples of the world. There's a reference here back to Genesis 22, 17 through 18, the promise to Abraham that, that one of his descendants will rule over all, and in him, quote, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, it says in Genesis 22. All the nations. And so by the end of Luke, we'll see a key point Luke wants to make, Jesus came to save not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, and to establish his kingdom through suffering over all of it. And Luke begins to tell us that right here, as he ties the Old Testament promises to their fulfillment in Jesus. You see, in a few sentences, Luke tells us that Jesus is fulfilling the covenant that God made with David and he's fulfilling the covenant that God had made with Abraham. While John is the last prophet, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies. 
and his fulfillment exceeds their expectations. The point is this, John prepares the way, guys, but Jesus is the way. It's great when God sends his people as prophets, but God sending his son as king is so much better. It's so much better. We come to the last thing that I want to compare, the questions. What I want you to see is is this. It's great when God disciplines our doubts, but accepting God's word is better. It's great when God disciplines our doubts. Now, you may not feel like it's great in the moment, but it is great. But I will tell you that accepting God's word is better. Zechariah asks the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. Now, these kinds of questions are common in angel scenes in the Old Testament We see it often. Zechariah may even be remembering Abraham's words in Genesis 15 or Genesis 17. He may think he was being pretty devout in his response as he followed Abraham's example. He's asking here for a confirming sign to go with the promises. The point isn't that he does not have faith at all. The point is that he has faith, but with some doubts along with it. You see, doubts are different than unbelief. If I I don't believe a plane can safely fly, I'm just not getting on the plane, right? But if I have doubts about the plane, then I might ask, you know, well, can I see the maintenance records? Can I see the flight manifestos? Can I chat with the uh, pilots for a minute, get their credentials? And I get on the plane, even if my stomach is churning the entire flight. I have faith, but I got some doubts. Zechariah, of all people, should have already had all of the signs that he needed. Why? Why do I say that? I think the angel's response gives us the clue. The angel says simply, I am Gabriel. Zechariah, what, 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 Gabriel goes, I am Gabriel. Are you kidding me? You joking me right now? I stand before the God most high. Now you might think, well, well yeah, I mean if if an angel appeared at a, you know at this critical moment, you know, you just kind of believe the angel, right? But there's more to it than that actually. There's more to it than that. That may, not act, that may not be immediately significant to us, but it ought to have been significant to Zechariah. You see, in Daniel chapter, chapters 8 through 10, Daniel is having some very important visions. One that, uh, visions that every devout Jew of Zechariah's day, certainly a priest, would have known about, would have immediately remembered. And, and Daniel is praying for God to restore Jerusalem and the temple. And he has these visions, and Gabriel is the one who comes to explain them. It's the only other time that Gabriel is mentioned. 
Last time we've seen Gabriel on the scene was right here in Daniel 8 through 10. And now all of a sudden he's standing right beside Zechariah. And one of the visions that Daniel has is during the evening sacrifice, just like Zechariah. And he gives him this vision of 70 weeks, or what would have been understood as 70 sets of seven. Every seven years was a year of rest, the Sabbath year. In 49 years, seven sets of seven, there would be a, a year of jubilee, or there was supposed to be a year of jubilee in Israel's law, right? But Israel didn't take those years of jubilee. They disobeyed the Lord. And so what did the Lord do for all their disobedience and idolatry? He sent him off into exile, right? And he said, well, guess what? You didn't want to give the, the land a year of rest every seven years? Well, I'm going to get all the backlog. I'm going to give them to the land because you're going to be in Babylon. And that's where Daniel is. He's exiled. And he has this dream. And those 70 years of backlog are just about done. He has this vision, and Gabriel says, well, it's 70 sets of seven years, right? 70 weeks that are going to happen. So seven, every seven years, right? There's seven sets, or seven, blah, I can't, there's too many sevens. Um, there's seven sets of seven, and then there was going to be another 62 sets of seven. That's 490 years total, right? When it's all said and done, all 70 weeks all 70 sets of seven to be 490 years. And so there we'd have, it would have been understood as the ultimate jubilee, the ultimate rest, the ultimate liberation, the messianic age. It says, until an anointed one is to come to make a strong or to, to establish, to, or rather to confirm a covenant and put an end to sacrifice is what it says in the book of Daniel. Now, without getting into the weeds too much here, the point I want to make here, uh, the point that I think is important to us in our story is twofold. First, a Jew in the first century, as devout to God's word as Zechariah, would have been anticipating, literally counting the years to the fulfillment of these things, to the coming of the Son of Man, the anointed one, to the establishment of the new covenant, to the ultimate year of Jubilee, to the coming of the new messianic age, the great hope of Israel. The present, the big present that's to be unwrapped on that day. And second, and they would, and they would have known, counting the years, that day's got to be coming. The day's got to be coming. It's been 400 and some years. Second, Gabriel appearing just as he had to Daniel was already sign enough because Gabriel's name, it means strong one. And the root, it comes from the same word that's in Daniel chapter, 20, or chapter 9, verse 27, when it says that the anointed one will make a strong covenant. It's the same word. And the word strong there relates, it relates to Gabriel's name and it means to establish, to make strong, to confirm, I should say not establish so much as to confirm what is already there. 
In other words, Daniel 9 says that the anointed one will confirm or make strong this covenant that brings everlasting righteousness. The very mention of Gabriel's name is the announcement of confirmation. It's in his name. So when he says, I'm Gabriel, it's as if he is saying, I am confirmation. If Zechariah didn't get it before, as soon as those words come out of Gabriel's mouth, immediately he would have gone. It's happening. It's it. It's the thing we've been waiting for. But Zechariah had doubted, and so Gabriel disciplined him by making him mute. Not coincidentally, the same impairment is given to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, verse 15. But whereas Daniel's was from awe, Zechariah's was due to doubt. He had this great message, yet he would not be able to share it. It served the purpose of refining and strengthening Zechariah's faith. But it also served the purpose of concealing what God was doing until the proper time, just as Elizabeth concealed her pregnancy. So that when Mary is told to come and to visit It's only the word of the angel. It's only the word of the angel that she knows, by which she knows to go and visit Elizabeth. It hasn't come to her on the grapevine that Elizabeth is pregnant. No, it's only because Gabriel says, because for five months, Elizabeth has kept it hidden. And here's the application for us. Listen, we have doubts. You and I, we we have doubts, right? I know God can do something, but I doubt that He will do it. I believe, oh sure, certainly God can do that, but mm, will He? I have no doubt that He'll do that great thing for you, but uh, when it comes to me, I'm not so sure. We ought to go back to God's Word and believe, but we don't. So God brings circumstances to refine us, to refine our faith, and they're hard. But what I want you to understand is they're good in the long run. It's God's goodness to you. God is so good that He uses these bumps in the road not to hinder His mission, but actually to move His mission forward, just as He does in the life of Zechariah. But He doesn't reveal all of what he's doing until the very moment he wants to reveal it. And so you're sitting there and you're thinking, God, how am I supposed to trust you? How am I supposed to know? I don't, I don't know. Why haven't you revealed it? And God is going, I'll reveal it right when you need to know it. You have everything you need right now to trust and follow me. Everything you need. You think you don't. Listen, I make the same mistake. So often, I think I don't know everything. God, I don't know everything. You need to tell me this so I can do what I'm supposed to do, right? And God's going, no, I've already given you. I'm a good father. And I have control of everything. I've already given you everything you need. The problem isn't you don't, that you don't have enough. The problem is you don't trust me. So let me help you with that. You see, it's good that God does that, that He disciplines our doubts and doesn't leave us in that state, but it's better yet 
to accept God's word. And that's what we see Mary doing. Hop down to verse 34 to me with me. Mary asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, it's my opinion that while Mary also has a question, her question reveals a very different heart than Zachariah. She isn't asking for confirmation, but she is wondering how it will happen. Essentially, hey, you said it, so I know it will happen, but how's that going to come about since, literally translated, I do not know a man? I think Mary's heart is different because, first, Elizabeth's statement later in verse 45 tells us that Mary believed. Second, when Gabriel explains this child won't come from you knowing a man, but because God knows you, God's favor is on you, and the Spirit is upon you, then Gabriel does give her a sign, though she doesn't ask for it, that Elizabeth is pregnant. And then the whole thing crescendos with this, this great statement, the, the, the high mark of the whole passage, nothing will be impossible with God. And how does Mary reply? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She trusts the Lord. She submitted not just to what God wants to do, but also how He plans to do it, even though it puts her in a very awkward situation. Listen, will we respond? Will we respond to the Lord? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever situation you're in, whatever has happened, will you respond, let it be to me according to the word of the Lord. I'm your servant. You see, while the holiday season and Christmas particularly can often be a joyous time, a time with family and a time with friends and many things we love, it can also simultaneously be a discouraging time, right? As it reminds us of things that aren't, of expectations unmet, of disappointments, and even of our failures. A rocky relationship a lost loved one, an uncertain situation, a word we shouldn't have spoken, a thing we shouldn't have done in the past. Like Elizabeth and Zechariah, it has been barren of what you've hoped for. It reminds you of that. For others of us, it reminds us of areas in our life where a situation has sprung on us that we didn't expect, a turn of fortune that looks bad and difficult. You don't know how it will turn out or what people will think. Like Mary, there's nothing you can do. The thing is upon you, and now you're reeling, thinking, how is this going to work out? And perhaps you're praying, God, this wasn't the plan. God, what are you doing? See, whatever the big gift is that you were anticipating, as the situation changes and time goes on, it feels like it's getting smaller 
and smaller and smaller. Every week, every month, every year that goes by, your hope fades and your doubt increases. But here's what I want you to see. Trust God from whom all good gifts come. Seek Christ. You find inside that very small box that doesn't look like much to you. You'll find the key. The key is Jesus. We may have to wait. And we may get anxious. And we may be unsure how it will work. And frankly, I'm just going to tell you, it's probably going to work out different than you thought. Because that's what God does, right? Every time I think, ooh, maybe it'll work out like this, I immediately think, oh, definitely is not going to work out like that. Because I just thought it. (laughs) And it never works out how I think. I shouldn't have thought that. (laughs) It's probably going to be different, just like it was different for Zechariah. And just like it was different for Mary. So I don't know what will happen. And I can't give you any guarantees there. But what I can say is this. There's one thing I am absolutely sure of. Jesus minus the thing we want is better than the thing we want minus Jesus. That I am 100% sure of. Because with Jesus, we have more than we could ever want. Seek Him and His kingdom first and see if God doesn't add so much more. Let me pray.